Welcome and thank you for joining us for today's event, uh, hosted by the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. For the record, it's Wednesday, September 20th, and we are joined by Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster and the Honorable Elaine Luria to discuss today's greatest threats and opportunities for U.S. national security. I'm Cliff May. I'm FTD's founder and president, and we're pleased to have you here either in person or online. Thank you especially to our in-person audience, which includes members of FTD's National Security Network. Now, what is that? The FTD's National Security Network is a distinguished group of nearly 600 bipartisan mid-career national security practitioners who have completed FDD's fellowships or national security trips. I've gotten to know many in this group through the years and my interactions with them give me confidence that the future of our country is in good hands. For those tuning in online, I encourage you to take a look in our, uh, into our mid-career programs. And if you're young and if you're in the national security business, you might consider applying for FDD's National Security Network Programming. Information's available, fdd.org. Um, a few words of background. The Chinese Communist Party is sprinting to field a military might that could conceivably deter or even defeat U.S. forces as they decide, as they may, to conquer Taiwan. Putin continues to wage his brutal, his barbarian, his illegal war against Ukraine. Nuclear-armed North Korea is strengthening its missile arsenal. And the Islamic Republic of Iran continues to oppress the Iranian people, export terrorism, expand its empire, and inch toward a nuclear weapons capability. While this list of threats and challenges is formidable, the U.S. does enjoy advantages, including a large and innovative economy, a powerful military, and a strong network of allies and partners. We're pleased to have two individuals joining us today who have deep experience and knowledge, having both served our country in uniform, and having held important leadership positions in the executive and legislative branches of uh, in the executive branch and Congress, respectively. First, we have Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, who served as a U.S. Army officer for 34 years, including deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan. He served as the 26th Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs. And most importantly, for us at least, we're proud to call him a colleague as the chairman of the Board of Advisors for FDD's Center on Military and Political Power. We're also very glad to have with us Congressman, Congresswoman Elaine Luria, who served for two decades as an officer in the U.S. Navy. She served on six ships as a nuclear-trained surface warfare officer with deployments to the Middle East and Western Pacific. She represented Virginia's 2nd Congressional District from 2019 to 2023, bringing her military experience to Capitol Hill as vice chair of the House Armed Services Committee, among other assignments. And today's conversation will be moderated by Bradley Bowman, who serves as Senior Director of FTD's Center of Military and Political Power. Brad previously served as a National Security Advisor to members of the Senate Armed Services and Foreign Relations Committee, as well as an active duty U.S. Army officer, Black Hawk pilot, and assistant professor at West Point. We're grateful to him for his terrific leadership of CMPP, and we look forward to him guiding today's discussion. So before we dive in, last word, a few words about FDD, just so everyone knows, for more than 20 years now, to my amazement, FDD has operated as a staunchly independent, nonpartisan research institute exclusively focused on national security and foreign policy. It's a point of pride and principle. We've never taken and never will accept any foreign government funding. For more on our work, visit our FDD websites, just FDD.org, and follow us on Twitter at FDD. 
And that's it for me, Brett. Over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Cliff, so much for the introduction. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining here in the room. It's great to have uh, folks here. Uh, and uh, thanks to both of you, uh, General McMaster and, and Ms. Luria, for being here. I'm, I'm really excited about this discussion, given all your deep uh, knowledge and experience on these topics. If it sounds okay to you both, I'd love to focus on Taiwan, Ukraine, the Middle East, and the Department of Defense, if we can squeeze all that into our allotted time. I always have uh, more questions than we have time, but we'll, we'll give it a go. So with your permission, I'll, I'll jump right in. I thought we could start with uh, Taiwan. Um, U.S.-China uh, uh, US tensions are, are acute right now. Uh, they're perhaps most acute in the seas and skies around Taiwan. Um, uh, Beijing seeks to control that island and has refused to take military force off the table. The essence of U.S. policy for decades, and, uh, codified in the Taiwan Relations Act, is that we think the dispute should be resolved peacefully and, and without a resort to, to force. Um, uh, regardless of that, many worry uh, that we could see Beijing, Beijing launch aggression in the coming years, uh, and the PRC is sprinting to build the military capability to do that, as, as DOD reports and, and other facts testify. So, General McMaster, if I could start with you. Um, and I often like to start with this question. It's kind of the who, who cares question. You know, what, why do you believe Americans should care about deterring aggression against Taiwan? Why does this matter? Well, I mean, there are, there are a number of reasons. First of all, is, is to protect the sovereignty of the Taiwanese people uh, who have a very successful democracy. Uh, and, and I think one of the obsessions that the Chinese Communist Party has is with Taiwan because Taiwan you know, gives, you know, demonstrates the lie that the Chinese people you know, are somehow culturally predisposed toward not wanting a say in how they're governed. Uh, and, and, then, and then, of course, uh, there, there are many other reasons that are just kind of hard reasons in terms of the global economy, uh, the, the reliance on Taiwan for the microprocessor and, and chip supply that is, that is really one of the key drivers uh, to, 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 the to the global economy. But then also to recognize the designs of the Chinese Communist Party. I think when you look at Taiwan, it's useful at times to pivot the map 90 degrees counterclockwise and look at Taiwan from that perspective and its geostrategic importance associated with China's desire, explicit desire, to create exclusionary areas of primacy across the Indo-Pacific region. You see that, obviously, with their designs on Taiwan, but also on the South China Sea, where they're trying to lay claim to the ocean and, 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 and a part of the ocean through which one-third of the world's surface trade flows. So it's, it's in all, all of our interests uh, to, 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 to ensure that, that Taiwan be able to, to you know, determine its own destiny. Uh, and this is, you know, the, the pressure on Taiwan is part of a grander ambition to, to not only create this exclusionary area of primacy across the Indo-Pacific, but to, to, to tear down the existing global order and rules and rewrite the rules in a way that favors their authoritarian, you know, uh, statist, uh, mercantilist model. I'm glad you mentioned the, the global nature. Sometimes it feels like people think it's just a, a Taiwan problem, but it's actually it's a global competition. And, and my colleague Craig Singleton, who helps lead our China program here, just in the last week or two, published a very detailed, I, I think, unprecedented analysis about uh, uh, China's efforts to establish additional overseas military bases. Yeah. Um, and so, to me, that kind of demonstrates uh, the truth of what you just said, that this is, that this is not a regional ambition. Th these are global ambitions, and it's a, really a clash of two worldviews, and they're trying to bring the military muscle to back it up. Uh, Ms. Lurie, I'd love to come to you next. Um, China's military sent 103 warplanes uh, toward Taiwan in the 24-hour period on Sunday and Monday, just a few days ago. 
in what the island's defense ministry called a recent new high. Um, the defense ministry said 40 of those planes crossed the median line. And so for me, you know, my characterization, this is part of an increasingly uh, aggressive and deeply irresponsible and destabilizing pattern of activity by Beijing. How do you assess uh, the PRC's threat to Taiwan? And what is your assessment of how the Biden administration is doing in terms of arming Taiwan and increasing our, our defense capability, capacity, posture, readiness in the Indo-Pacific? Um, so we have one hour here? Yeah, I know. <laughs> we I want know. to cover yeah. all these yeah. topics. So there were a, lot of, 60 seconds. a lot of questions yeah, yeah. in there, but <laughs> yeah. you know, you're, yeah. you're exactly right. I mean, the level of activity surrounding Taiwan uh, by Chinese military forces, both aircraft, ships, um, and you know other activity within the region, not just around Taiwan, but also look at the recent activity around the Philippines. I feel like they're testing, they're probing, yeah. they're continuously going out there to see what the reaction will be by Taiwan, by the Philippines, by Japan. I mean, there's dozens of these unresolved um, maritime claims, mm. um, and China is progressively testing those. We know in the past they've gone in and essentially taken these features, which were not islands, were not land, built them up and you know created bases uh, for themselves and for their use, and then extended their yes. unrecognized maritime claims beyond that. Um, I think that you know the administration recognizes that this is a, a top priority in foreign policy. We've seen numerous cabinet secretaries traveling to China and engaging on many levels. Um, as was mentioned already, this is not just a military issue. It's, mm -hmm. it's economic. It's human rights. It's uh, you know a whole range of things. And I think uh, the administration recognizes that that engagement is crucial. Yeah. Um, and when we talk back to the question before about how why is this important, I mean it really is going to determine essentially whose values rule the remainder of the 21st century. Is it the United States, our allies and partners, or is it some new world order that China um, has designs to, to create? Um, I think the administration, and you know, I pushed in Congress, we need to spend more on defense, um, essentially working with, with my colleagues in a very bipartisan way um, to plus up uh, what the administration had submitted for the defense budget last year and the preceding year, and, and collectively in that two years, the first two years of the Biden administration, adding about $62 billion to the request, um, and really focusing on those capabilities and platforms that are necessary within the Pacific. I think there's been a big challenge from the administration with this idea of divest to invest. Mm. Um, it's great to think about new technologies, new things that we can implement in the future, but when they're not mature, mm -hmm. um, and we're talking about a problem today that we might need to address right. with today's capabilities, today's troops, today's platforms, um, we can't divest of all of those for a capability that we might have uh, in the future once it's yeah. mature. So um, I think there's a big challenge there. And then you pile on top of that kind of what we're seeing right now as we approach the end of the fiscal year um, and needing to fund the government moving forward. You know, can Congress even get a CR across the line? And we might talk later about yeah. how CRs have implications, yeah. but that's yeah. better than a shutdown. Um, and there's really a lot looming. And you have to look at that and say, um, you know, what is the rest of the world's saying and, and how is that making us vulnerable when we see that happen to not be able to reliably and on time fund um, the Department of Defense and our government as a whole. You know, it's a sad state of affairs when you're wishing for a continuing resolution. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, uh, as, as you both know well, uh, China's aggressive behavior is not relegated to the season skies uh, around Taiwan. Uh, we've seen uh, China's Coast Guard and China's uh, maritime militia ships, for example, 
trying to prevent the Philippines, you and I were discussing this the other day, from resupplying its outpost in the second uh, Thomas Shoal, which is inside the Philippines' exclusive economic zone. Um, so I know this has been an area of interest for you, and obviously with you, your experience in the Navy, I'm particularly interested to hear from you. What is China up to, you know, for people busy with paying the mortgage and raising the kids? Mm. What the heck is China up to in the South China Sea? And, and, and again, why should we care, and, and, and are we taking the necessary steps? Well, as I said a minute ago, I think China is testing and probing. Yeah. There are many of these land features. Some of them are coral reefs. Yeah. Some may only be visible at low tide. Yeah. Um, that are claimed by multiple countries, some of yeah. them by China and another country, yeah. some by multiple parties. Um, and I think that their activities, um, either building on those features or preventing other countries who lay claim to them from having access to them, um, there was an agreement made essentially to maintain the status quo with mm -hmm. a group of ASEAN nations, yeah. and they're testing that because when that was made, the Philippines had already put this ship um, aground on this reef and had continued to man it as an outpost, but now they're testing that. And then things have happened where the Philippines has reaffirmed its you know, security agreement and mutual defense commitment to the ally United of ours. States. <laughs> um, and so they're finding ways to test that with yeah. some of our closest allies. You know, the Philippines has reconfirmed that. Japan has been a long-standing ally, South Korea. Um, and then you move into Southeast Asia, you know, there's countries who are kind of caught in the middle, Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore, mm. Indonesia. Where did they stand in these alliances and the pressure, both military and or economic, from China? Um, so this is, I think, just one example of many places where they're trying to test those alliances. Yeah, that's great. Uh, General McMaster, this month, as I'm sure you know, marks the two-year anniversary of the establishment of the trilateral security agreement between Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States, known as AUKUS, the coolest acronym in D.C. I, I love that. Uh, kudos to whoever thought of that. Pillar 1 focuses on the delivery of a nuclear-powered, conventionally armed attack submarines to Australia. And Pillar 2 focuses on developing and filling advanced uh, capabilities to the three countries. Um, what is your assessment of AUKUS? Is, was this a good idea? What do you think of the rollout? And, and do you have any concerns about its implementation so far? Well, well first I just want to say thanks for your leadership in the Navy and on the Hill. And you're so right about, I think, the investments we need in defense now. You know, I, I just want to yeah. mention George Marshall's observation that, you know, when you have the time, you don't have the money. And then when you get the money, you don't have the time. And I think that's the situation we're, you know, we're in right now. In terms of AUKUS, I think this is a really great initiative, uh, as well as uh, the efforts to invigorate kind of, kind of a failing effort, sadly, on, uh, in connection with India, uh, you know, the, the quad format to, in, a defense, uh, in, in, in relations to, to defense. But also the reinvigoration as well of the, of the U.S., Japan, and South Korean relationship mm -hmm. across all three, instead of just the hub and spoke between yeah. Washington and Tokyo and Washington and, and Seoul. And I think what you're seeing is we watch kind of the, the limitations of the United Nations and especially you know, the utter ineffectiveness of the Security Council. What you're going to need are these sort of bespoke partnerships and alliances that are purpose-built to solve real problems. And in this case, AUKUS is designed to contribute to security across Indo-Pacific and deterring what would be a, a disastrous war with, uh, with China and to do so by denial, by convincing uh, the PLA and the Chinese Communist Party they couldn't accomplish their objectives through the use of force in the South China Sea vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan and so forth. So I, I think that the Biden administration has done a, a very good job at invigorating some of these kind of bespoke partnerships. Uh, but now, it's, obviously, there's a lot more work to do to implement and to, and to develop the hard capabilities. I mean, hey, if we learned anything from Ukraine, mm. hard power matters, <laughs> right? And this idea of integrated deterrence, which is like, I think, pixie dust, 
that you just sprinkle on problems and hope that they go away, that's not sufficient. So I, I think, I think uh, what we have to really do is, is make the investments across AUKUS uh, to, to have those real defense capabilities. If you look at the UK, I mean, they're not doing really anything to invigorate their, their defense. Japan has stepped up considerably uh, in terms of doubling its defense budget. So I, so I think, you know, I, I think our, our allies and partners and us, we ourselves, have to recognize that this situation, the threat, requires greater investments. Interesting your thoughts on AUKUS, particularly Pillar 1, the attack submarine angle. As I'm sure you, uh, you probably have memorized, if, I, if my number's right, our requirement for attack submarines is 66. I think we're sitting around 49 or so and going south. So we don't have the attack submarines we need. Uh, we're struggling to build two per year as we're trying to bring on the, the, the Columbia class. Um, so, you know, uh, do you think we're going to be able to pull off Pillar 1? Uh, do we have the industrial capacity, both production and maintenance, to, to make this happen? So I think that's a big challenge. Yeah. And kind of stepping back a little bit, um, you know, I'm up here on the stage with couple army guys, but as the Navy person. Um, and we you know, couldn't even get there without the Navy. We love <laughs> the Navy. How could you not like the Navy? Right? Good. Uh, but, you know, it's, obviously it's a maritime theater. So, I mean, investments in maritime platforms and capabilities and aviation platforms capabilities, those that can cover, you know, the range and geography in the Pacific are, are really important. And the place where I think we maintain our strategic advantage uh, against China at this point is our nuclear submarine fleet. Um, understanding that we need to grow that fleet and that capability. Um, probably a whole nother discussion, you know, some limitations about the defense industrial base yeah. and our ability to build submarines. A lot of it can, can be, you know, taken back to, you know, dependable, reliable demand, i.e. what Congress says we're going to buy over what time period, exactly. the industrial base, sort of having that reliability to invest in increasing their capacity. And as you said, we're struggling to get to two Virginia-class submarines a year. We'd like to get to three. Um, and then bringing on board um, a plan to increase the output of that industrial base in partnership yeah. with the British and Australians is challenging. I think we haven't necessarily yet seen what the challenges within Australia might be. If you think about a country that has mm. no civilian nuclear power industry, mm. other than perhaps, you know, research reactor at a university. Um, going from that to the extreme of having nuclear-powered submarines, um, you know, even non-proliferation advocates within the United States balk at the way we use highly enriched uranium to, for our submarines. Um, so there are perhaps potential hurdles within Australia mm -hmm. that we'll have to watch mm -hmm. and see how that happens. But, you know, our industrial base is going to need big investments to move forward yeah. and, and ramp up that production. And if, you know, I like to reflect back on, you know, John Lehman as the Secretary of the Navy and, you know, under the Reagan administration, the effort to build a 600-ship Navy, one of the things that, that uh, former Secretary Lehman says frequently is that, you know, 90% of the benefit out of that plan came in the first two or three years. It was showing the commitment to the Soviet Union that we were going to make this investment, we were going to build these ships, we were going to be the predominant maritime power, maintaining world order as it stood at the time. So I think one of the biggest risks we have is in not pulling this off. Mm. If we can't make our three combined industrial bases no. work to build these submarines and give that capability to Australia, um, that also sends a message. Yeah, exactly. So it's pretty high risk. Yeah. The, um, unfortunately, our, our adversaries don't give us the luxury of dealing with one problem at a time. It would be nice of them if they do that, but um, uh, unfortunately, as we're dealing with these challenges in the Indo-Pacific, we're also witnessing the largest invasion in Europe since World War II. Uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky obviously is in the United States this week. He uh, spoke at the UN General Assembly yesterday. He's traveling to D.C. He's going to be meeting with folks at the White House and with congressional leaders. 
comes at a significant moment, I, I think, uh, I'd say, as uh, we see debates within the, among the Republican presidential candidates about uh, whether it's in our interest to support Ukraine. Uh, and we see Congress considering whether to um, appropriate additional funding for security assistance and other support for Kyiv. So I'm eager, really eager to ask both of you, uh, again, uh, not to be a, a one-trick pony here, but why should Americans care about the outcome in Ukraine? Why does this matter to us? General McMaster, can I start yeah. with you? Well, I think, first of all, we have to recognize our, our investments have been significant in terms of helping, you know, helping Ukrainians with, with, uh, with, uh, you know, with lethal capabilities and, and other support capabilities. But it's only been about, I think, 2 to 3 percent equivalent of, of the U.S. defense budget. Uh, and what the Ukrainians have done is they have blunted, you know, just a brazen Russian aggression that, that really began, you could say, in 2003 with poisoning a Ukrainian presidential candidate, but then continuing uh, through through various subversive activities across Europe, uh, denial service attacks on Estonia in 2007, inciting riots there and so forth, the invasion of Georgia in 2008, various other acts of aggression, including the invasion of, of, of Ukraine um, initially, uh, years ago, so in, in 2014. So Russia's not going to stop unless Russia is stopped. The Ukrainians are the ones who are stopping Russia uh, from not only continuing the, the, the invasion of Ukraine and, and, uh, and subsuming that country, but, but also in a broader effort to, uh, to, to really make the Black Sea a Russian lake and then to use that coercive position to advance their geostrategic objectives in a way that disadvantages the United States, that breaks apart NATO. They're very active in political subversion now across Europe. Obviously, they've been in, in Transnistria for you know for years and 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 subverting the, the Moldovan government, uh, Belarus has been de facto annexed by Russia. I mean nobody's really been talking about about that. There's tremendous pressure on Bulgaria, who has an election coming up next year. So Russia's shown no sign of diminishing their efforts to create problems elsewhere. Uh, continuing the serial episodes of mass homicide, for example, in Syria. Uh, as well as the destabilization uh, of West Africa uh, with these coups, coups and so forth. So Ukraine is on the front line of a much broader conflict. And we were talking initially about, about the threat to Taiwan. And I think that the outcome of Ukraine is directly related uh, to what the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Liberation Army concludes about whether or not they could succeed in, in Taiwan. And so I think it's immensely important to restore peace through assisting the Ukrainians in winning. And, and of course, then the question is, what is winning? Winning is, you know, that Ukraine gets back their sovereignty, right? They're, they're a country that is, that is whole, that is independent, that is secure, and is economically viable and defensible in the long term. And I think clarity on that end state and then evaluating the degree to which our assistance is adequate or inadequate. I mean, I, one of the things that's frustrating to me is, 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 uh, is that we have not evaluated the assistance we're providing based on adequacy to accomplish that objective. And in fact, that objective has been kept, I think, deliberately ambiguous by the administration. And that's not helpful to say, as long as it takes, I think we have to ask the question, okay, what is it, right? And, the, and then how do we help the Ukrainians get to it? Yeah, no, that's, that's, thank you for that. You, you mentioned the, uh, the amount of, of spending. Um, it's you know, roughly $44 billion in security assistance. And according to our research here at our Center on Military and Political Power, that is 3.5% of what we spent on the Pentagon during the same time period. So a lot of people are throwing out the 5% number, but they're comparing 12 months with 19 months. So if you're going to compare apples to apples, it's 3.5%, give or take, 
What are we getting for that? Where I would argue, and eager for you to push back or agree or disagree if you want to, Ms. Luria, is that we're dealing body blows to the second leading conventional military threat the United States confronts without putting a single uniformed member of our military in harm's way while sending a message that we're not neutral to unprovoked aggression that tries to redraw borders with, with military force. To me, that feels like a bargain. We have a partner that's willing to fight to defend their homes, and, and it feels like we would pull that back at our own peril. Do you agree, disagree? Is that overstated? A little too, too much hyperbole no, I, there, or what do you think? I don't think there's hyperbole there, and you said, you know, a partner who's willing to fight. I mean, this is a country and a people who have shown an incredible amount of bravery, sacrifice, and are under the direct assault from an unprovoked invasion. Yeah. I think that we need to give them every tool that we have in our toolbox to help them get to an end state that they can define as a sovereign nation, uh, but we should be there with them as partners. Um, I think this has brought NATO closer together. It has brought several NATO nations to make more significant commitments. It has actually brought more partners and allies within the defense industrial base to supporting worldwide, mm -hmm. especially within NATO. I was just looking at you know the numbers of howitzers, for example, that are now being produced in Korea that are going to NATO countries. And you know when we talk about the need for the defense industrial base, not just within our country or with our NATO allies, but you know more far expanded broadly with those who share our values, I think it's bringing more people to the table to take more action. Um, and we have to stay on the side of Ukraine. And you know they had the recent summit, um, the NATO summit, um, which you know, reconfirmed support to Ukraine, um, maybe wasn't as explicit as it could be about future NATO, member, uh, NATO membership for Ukraine, but certainly lays out the path that you know, once the situation is stabilized, once the conflict is, is terminated, um, that NATO wants to welcome Ukraine, um, that, that we are with them. And, if I can just go off a Please. little yeah. bit on a discussion yeah. of you know, how this has become a partisan issue, yeah. you know, both kind of with yeah. the speaker, you know, needing to hold on to, you know, some some support within the far right part of the caucus and a presidential election on the horizon, is that you know being in the room behind closed doors in a bipartisan fashion with the Armed Services Committee before the invasion happened, it was absolutely unanimous that everyone in that room was actually balking at the administration. Why are you still making plans? Why are you still trying yeah. to decide what we could send or we might yeah. want to give? It was like, we need to do more. We need to do more on a faster pace. And why are you holding back um, so many things? And I think progressively, we've obviously given more capabilities with more range. And now we're looking at F-16s. But the truth is, is that like we need to give them the tools to get to an in-state that we can accept, that they can accept, and I just feel like we need to stop, uh, stop holding back. And you know, so the internal domestic politics of making this an issue—it's kind of always one of those things that might come up in this type of a political cycle. Of, you know, we have so many problems here at home. Right. Why are we sending money right. over there? Well, we're protecting our values <laughs> and our world economy and kind of what we value as a country and a nation by supporting those who are on the front lines fighting to preserve the world order. So it's a little hard to walk that all the way back sometimes to a kitchen table issue, yeah. um, but it, it truly is an investment that we need to keep making. Thank you for that. I mean, we saw uh, two world wars and a start in Europe in a 30-year period that ultimately took the lives of more than 500,000 Americans. So, you know, what matters in Europe matters here at home, I would say. General McMaster, based on your deep uh, combat experience in, in ground warfare, I, I would be remiss if I didn't elicit your thoughts on how you think uh, the, the battle, what the battlefield's looking like, and how the Ukrainian counteroffensive is going. Yeah, 
Well, there's been a lot of discussion, obviously, with people predicting, you know, the speed of the offensive and so forth. But I think it's just important to recognize that what the Ukrainians are trying to do is, is, the, is the hardest task to accomplish in, in, uh, in land combat, which is to, to penetrate a, a prepared defense in depth, uh, especially in difficult terrain, difficult terrain that involves the crossing of multiple natural obstacles, as well as man-made obstacles and minefields and trenches. Uh, but also in, ter in terrain that doesn't have a whole a lot of degree of tra traffic ability so that you're predictable in terms of use road use uh, and then it is also relatively open so your forces have only a limited ability to conceal an offensive operation for example and then of course after you reveal your offensive operation it's easy to move reinforcements to the really the where they're trying to penetrate uh, and then to attack those forces with the massive artillery that the russians have as well as what's i think been underappreciated which is some of their aviation capabilities, but especially their electronic warfare capabilities. Mm -hmm. So it's a very complex mission to penetrate that defense and drive to the Sea of Azov and, and isolate the Crimean Peninsula and, and the Russian defenses in the south. But I, I still think it, it is feasible for a number of reasons. It's unclear, you know, obviously how many uh, casualties the, the Ukrainians have suffered. It's significant, though. But, but I think what they're trying to do now is to, is to reconstitute forces, train forces at the collective level where you can operate together with infantry and mobile protected firepower and engineers and fires and air defense. And it's extremely, it's, a, it's like an orchestra of capabilities that you have, to, you have to bring together. It's hard to conduct that level of collective training, mm -hmm. you know, uh, to prepare for this kind of an offensive. I know they're racing to do that. As they integrate these bits of equipment that are, that are flowing in, uh, you know, in, in small packages. I mean, like thirty tanks. I mean, <laughs> how about three hundred tanks? I mean, are you kidding me? How many? Uh, I mean, you, so I, how many did you command in, probably, in mean, Iraq? I just, <laughs> right. I mean, I just, I just think it's it's yeah. kind of silly the, the the way that's being these cables are being dribbled in. Yeah. yeah. And there's been some training, but but not at this kind of collective orchestra level of, of training that you really need you need to conduct. So the Ukrainians are, are racing to develop that capability. I think the support we can give them now are, are in two areas. Everything that they need to prevent continued attacks on the civilian population and on civilian infrastructure and positions in depth. And of course, that's, that's you know, tiered missile defense uh, and air defense, but it's really the long-range precision fires, the longer-range ATACMS systems. That's a no-brainer from, from my perspective. Uh, and that, what that does is it also lends itself to counter-battery fire uh, so, so that you can protect attacking forces from artillery. And then the second group of capability is just that, what it takes to penetrate those defenses. I think we, they do not have adequate engineering capabilities, right? Combat engineers, I mean, they're, they're some of my favorite people, next to Army mechanics, you know, <laughs> because they just get everything done, uh, and they usually do it with, like, pretty old equipment and everything. But, but I mean, but it's valuable equipment, line charges to breach, to breach minefields, you know, plows and plow tanks and, and integrate it with them. It's, it's hard stuff, it's dangerous, it's difficult, uh, but I, I think that you know, there are certain capabilities that we need to really focus on with Ukrainians, obviously, based on their demand uh, to, to help them integrate into the force to get that kind of a penetration. And then, of course, once they get it, uh, once they're able to gain control of more territory, then they place Russia's logistics facilities and their military facilities on the Crimean Peninsula at risk and could maybe even neuter the Crimean Peninsula uh, as, as a way for the Russians to continue to project power uh, in, into Ukraine and, and to do what they're trying to do now is to choke Ukraine out. I mean, you know, Putin isn't going to be satisfied with not having Ukraine, right? So what he's going to do is make sure that nobody can have Ukraine, even Ukrainians. And so that's why, you know, the good old-fashioned convincing your enemy that your enemy's been de defeated is what's, I think, important to end the war.
That's great. Secretary of Defense Austin and uh, General Milley, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, were in Ramstein, Germany yesterday uh, to host the, uh, the latest uh, meeting of the Ukraine Defense Contact Group, the 15th such meeting. Um, and uh, he emphasized, as you just did, the importance of, of our European allies helping uh, with, with air defense, um, right? And people are talking about what is or isn't going to happen this winter in terms of a slackening of operations. We'll, we'll see. Uh, but we, I, it seems safe to assume that we're going to continue to see Russia targeting uh, civilian infrastructure and civilians with missiles and drones and that sort of thing. Um, how would you, how would you um, what grade would you give the Biden administration's uh, support for Ukraine since the February 24th? What, what have they done well and where, where would you be critical? Um, so a letter grade, I mean, <laughs> I, I would say that, you know, I think we're at an A minus. Okay. And I say that because the speed, yeah. like the size of the thing packages we send, like yeah. was discussed sort of the trickling in. Yeah. Um, without sort of a reliable commitment with a quicker lead time to get it yeah. there, to integrate it into the operations and training. Um, it felt in Congress like we were just pounding on the table. Why can't we send more? Why can't we yeah. send this other capabilities? You know, why limit sort of the range of their counterattack capability and, and different things? Um, but, you know, the Ukraini Ukrainians, they've, they've soldiered on. They've been right. very innovative right. um, in a difficult time. You know, using some of the capabilities that they've been provided and that they've developed internally yeah. um, to have m really major gains and accomplishments. And maybe we'll have a chance to yeah. talk on the naval side. I mean, yeah. yeah, you said a minute ago, yeah. like, you know, I think that Putin wants to see the Black Sea as sort of like a Russian yeah. lake. But the yeah. truth is, is the tides have really turned on that. Yeah. Um, the use of unmanned surface vessels, drones um, to attack key targets, attacking a kilo submarine, yeah. attacking some troop landing ships, other things that have taken away their capabilities have really given Ukraine without a navy of their own. I mean, yes. they scuttled their main right. frigate at the beginning of this conflict but have given them the opportunity to really have access to the Black Sea again. Um, we are seeing more commercial vessels yeah. you know, coming in. They're sort of inviting them with open arms, saying, we will protect you, we'll guide you through to our ports. And we understand on a broader scale the importance that has you know, for the grain market and you know, providing you know, food and resources to the, to the broader world. Um, so you know, I think that uh, as well, you know, an A minus on the speed of delivery, and probably, you know, an, a solid A on strengthening the NATO alliance mm -hmm. and really making sure that, that that is emphasized. And, you know, kind of going back to the previous administration, um, you know, although not in line with many policies, I would say that, you know, it was a correct statement by the former president that, you know, our NATO partners need to do more to help pay for and support yeah. their own mutual defense and our mutual defense. And, you know, these series of events have led to that and have proven that to be true, and we've seen it. Why do we see so often, you referenced this a little bit, why have we seen so often kind of this, uh, what I, I and others have described as kind of this no, maybe, yes dynamic from the Biden administration, where Ukraine asks for something, initial response is no, or maybe, or that's long-term, like, like we can't work on the short, medium, and long-term all at the same time. And then the yes finally comes months later. Meanwhile, Ukrainians are fighting and dying. Why aren't attack comes in Ukraine right now? I mean, what, 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 is it a fear of provoking Putin? I mean, I what is the core concern? I mean, at the very beginning, I mean, I think that was certainly the key driver, and you might want to weigh in, too. I mean, the key driver is here we have a nuclear-armed adversary. Um, we 
we give Ukraine different capabilities, if we had immediately given them with a long-range strike capability to strike into Russian territory, like what would the reaction have been? I mean, right. Very but whenever hands we've off asked of them, not trying to provoke, you know, some sort of nuclear yeah. response from Russia. I mean, time has gone on. It's still a possible reaction as you know Putin gets more desperate and you know kind of continues to lose more ground and more forces. That could still happen, but I think the sort of stomaching the provision of capabilities to Ukrainians to give them longer range and more firepower has, has it's progressed over time. Yeah. Um, but again, it, it seems like we could do more in a more concerted, rapid fashion to like let them make the push that they need to make to, to, to finish it in a way that as Ukraine, you know, they're happy with, if they can't be happy with the result, but you know, satisfied. Yeah. Um, with an outcome to gain, regain their territory, their sovereignty, and drive Russians out of their country. General McMaster, the, um, the Iranians provided hundreds of these drones to Russia, to, uh, to, uh, the, that Russian, the Shahid 136, Shahed 136 and others that Russians have used to, uh, to pummel uh, and, and kill Ukrainians. I, I'm interested in your thoughts on the evolving relationship between Russia and Iran. Yeah. This is really an important question, I think, because people you know, think, well, what does the Middle East have to do with this? What has everything to do with, I think, the competition with Russia and, and with, uh, with China as well? And, and whereas, you know, I, I did say, hey, I think the Biden administration deserves credit for AUKUS, a new, a new arrangement for invigorating the trilateral relationship now with Seoul, Tokyo and Washington. But I think that they, if we're going to grade anybody, I think give them an F for the Middle East. And and, uh, and a failure to recognize the interconnected nature of these competitions mm-hmm. uh, with, with China, Russia, and, and, and the hostile regimes of North Korea, and especially Iran, which is playing in a, in a, a very important role to bringing, uh, bringing Russia and China into the Middle East in a way that disadvantages our interests. So it's the, it's the sale of drones, it's the selling of, of more Iranian oil uh, and, and uh, energy to, to China. Uh, in a way that has alleviated a lot of the economic pressure on on Iran, but I think what's what's happened to empower Iran and Russia and China across the region is just an unwise approach of supplicating to the Iranians. I don't know how else to to put it. I don't, don't understand this unnatural desire uh, to think that suddenly the theocratic dictatorship there is going to change if we if we can bring them back into this to the international community. We suffered the humiliation of not even be able to talk directly to the Iranians as we're trying to revive a dead uh, nuclear deal. Uh, and now we've seen you know, a, you know, a $6 billion payoff for the release of hostages, all of which portrays weakness and also a deep ambivalence at best uh, to our other you know, partners in, in the region who now are incentivized to hedge you know, with the Russians, to hedge with, with the, the Chinese. So I think that the administration has done quite a bit to diminish its influence um, across the Middle East because of an unwise, mainly because of an unwise approach to Iran. It was good to see the Americans uh, arrive back home that were held unjustly in Iran, but uh, you know, six billion dollars in money was uh, unfrozen, and and, um, one wonders, you know, given the fungible nature of of money, how that's going to be used. What what do you make of this deal by which? uh, the, uh, the administration agreed to unfreeze $6 billion in Iranian oil revenue and to d- dismiss federal charges against five Iranians in return for the release. Are we going to get more hostage-taking from Iran, and how is that money going to be spent? 
Well, I mean, I certainly agree that the nature of negotiations, whether it was a futile attempt to re-enter the JCPOA and just stating my, my position as I was never in favor of the JCPOA mm -hmm. from the beginning. I obviously wasn't in Congress at that time, but wouldn't have supported that. And I think, you know, this recent deal, things related to the JCPOA and anything that allowed the Iranians um, to freely have the ability to fund their proxy groups, um, you know, which have destabilized the region um, and continue to is, is not something that should be within our policy. And you can kind of always take it back to the Navy. I mean, <laughs> haven't had a 1.0 carrier presence in the Gulf for quite a while. Yeah. Um, and having steamed multiple times through the Strait of Hormuz, seeing exactly what the Iranians do, um, how they you know, harass um, shipping. We've seen it with commercial shipping. We've seen in encounters with our, our military vessels going through. Um, that if we're not there, they're going to take advantage of that. Yeah. Um, and we've obviously had you know, additional commitments in the UCOM AOR relative to supporting NATO in Ukraine. Um, and you know, back to the defense industrial base question, I mean, we just aren't kind of keeping up with the being able to generate the forces on the deployment um, you know, timeline and then the numbers uh, that we need. All of that to go to say is when you have a carrier in a Gulf, it makes a difference. Yeah. And when you don't, um, you see more of this activity from um, the Iranians, which just coupled with these types of negotiations, extra cash to go in the pockets of all of their, their proxies around the region, um, makes it a le less safe place. And it's all tied together. I mean, every yeah. single element of this yeah. is tied together. And again, it, it kind of pivot back to who shares our values and who doesn't. Iran is definitely on the side of who doesn't. We see Iranian uh, drones killing Ukrainians in Ukraine. We see those drones targeting our troops in Syria. We see them attacking our Arab partners and, and our Israeli allies. And, and uh, it really does, as you said, General McMaster, kind of tie together uh, the, uh, these threats and, and suggest that um, uh, maybe Iran would like to keep us divided and distracted. And maybe it's our interest to build a more cohesive and unified coalition to make them think twice about this, this 40 plus uh, your uh, track record of, of, of aggression against yeah, us. Absolutely. And, and you know, I just, I just think also that uh, we gave up uh, economic coercion uh, or deterrence against uh, Iran because of the failure to enforce the sanctions as the Biden administration came in, the existing sanctions on the Iranian uh, regime. And, uh, and then we also gave up military um, deterrence because we didn't respond uh, to many of the attacks that you mentioned or we responded in a way that was really just uh, portrayed a weakness to the Iranians. I think that the time, you know, has passed for us to, to recognize what the return address is uh, associated with attacks that are, that are conducted by Iranian proxy forces. The return address is Tehran, you know, and, and so I think at some stage an American president is going to have to decide what to do. And I think at that stage, you know, it will probably be time uh, to, to to um, destroy some of their military capabilities, uh, but then also maybe to go after some of their nuclear missile capabilities, you know, which they have continued. I mean, well, I think it's important to, to, to mention that when we're trying to revive the Iran nuclear deal, the Iranians said, okay, well, we're going to have to restart the program, you know, that they said never existed, right? <laughs> and, 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 and so, I mean, it's, you know, it's just, it's, it's ridiculous to trust this regime, you know? And, and again, we, we're going to trust them with the, to use the $6 million, $6 million for humanitarian purposes. I mean, that's, that's self-delusion. We saw, and, and uh, short on time, but I, you know, I mean, you know far better than me, General McMaster, we saw them uh, during uh, our time in Iraq 
um, build explosively formed penetrators specifically the, for the purpose of penetrating American armor and killing American service members. The Kuds Force smuggled it across the border, trained people to use it, and hundreds of Americans died as a result. So this, this isn't some DC theoretical discussion. This is life and right. death for our forces and our partners, right. as you know, far better than me. Um, right. So uh, you mentioned uh, naval power, and that's exactly what I, I, I love having a, a naval expert here. So it's, it's wonderful we can do Army, Navy, and, and everything <laughs> in between. Um, following a spike in Iranian uh, seizure and harassment of commercial shipping vessels earlier this year, White House spokesman Admiral Kirby announced in May that we were going to be sending a lot of additional forces, the, the uh, Bataan Amphibious Ready, Readiness Group, the 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit. And uh, we've been uh, doing some research here at FDD at our Center of Military and Political Power. And from January of 21 to June or July of this year, we've documented at least 26 incidents of Iranian harassment, attack, or seizures. And what's interesting, and it's kind of obvious when you say it, but I think there's policy implications to it. When the U.S. Navy shows up, the Iranians think twice. And, and they fail to seize the, in most instances. And so to me, that just underscores the value of power, of, of hard power, and the value of forward presence, particularly naval presence. I, this is what we call a softball comment, but I'm going to allow you to take wherever you want to go with that. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I did touch on that a minute ago. Yeah. Um, and it is true that, you know, over the course of the 20 years I spent in the Navy, most of my deployments included some portion of the time, you know, in the Middle East, in the Gulf, in the North Arabian Sea. Um, and the Iranians have this habit of harassing our forces, harassing commercial shipping as it comes through. And, you know, it's been cyclical over time, but we have put, you know, marine leadettes, uh, marine uh, detachments, um, security forces on, you know, commercial vessels, especially U.S. flagged vessels um, going through. We've worked closely with our partners and allies who have, you know, continuously had rotational forces um, in the Gulf to escort ships at various times. Um, through the Strait of Hormuz, and you know we have to be there. We have to have presence. And I can just go back to the, you know, some comments I recall on the Armed Services Committee. You know, I think that um, you know quantity has a quality of its own. We have to have enough ships, enough mm -hmm. aircraft, enough presence around the world. And I would say that this administration's position, really reflected perhaps by you know, the former chairman of the Armed Services Committee and now the ranking member Adam Smith, you know, he would say that was ludicrous. But the truth is, is you can't be where you need to be, right. the consistency that you need to be there, showing the American flag and working with our partners and allies to maintain freedom of the seas, free navigation, free commerce, all these things that are important to our world order. You can't do that if you don't have enough ships and you don't right. have enough sailors, enough soldiers. Um, and again, back to, you know, we need to continue to look at the level of investment and where we need to, to get um, relative to to be able to provide um, you know, those forces that we need to around the world. It's a great point. I, I, and, and I mentioned these 26 incidents. There were many instances that we discovered where there was a drone, an American drone, seeing the Iranian fast boats swarming. But because there was no US naval vessel around, they got away with it. But, when, but then there are other instances where the US Navy was there, and the Iranians who had already boarded the ship then fled. So, I mean, you know, this is not rocket science. You know, this stuff kind of matters. Anyway, shifting to the department. Oh, did you uh, want to add anything to that? No, I just want to say like, these new forms of warfare, use of drones and swarm drone cables, for example, typically don't replace the old forms of warfare. They're additive. Right. And I, and I think this, this goes back to your point that you made earlier, Elaine, which is really, really important. Some people who want to kind of just kind of play the shell game in, in defense investments say, oh, well, we can divest of the old because we have this new stuff coming down the road. And I think what we're seeing is a lack of capacity now in forward positioned capable forces capable of operating in sufficient scale and for ample duration to defeat aggression. 
That's where the deterrence comes from, not from sprinkling forces around as tripwires or the, you know, the 300 troops we sent to Romania, you know, during the invasion of Ukraine. I mean, 300. I mean, so I just think quantity does have a quality of its own. I just wanted to put an exclamation point on that. It's actually the perfect segue because I wanted to go next to defense industrial base issues. Um, uh, you know, a, a lot of Americans who may have the sense that, you know, we have we have the best industrial base in the world and we do. Uh, but at this moment, when we're simultaneously trying to arm Ukraine uh, and make uh, Taiwan a porcupine to deter uh, China, uh, aggression from the PRC and conduct what I and others have called the most significant military modernization effort in, in 40 years and four decades, we've turned to our industrial base and it's not quite what many of us thought it would be. The, uh, the arsenal of democracy is not quite there. Uh, when you t look at munitions, for example, um, you know, it's for, you, you saw this, I'm sure, when you were on the Armed Service Committee. I certainly saw this when I was staffing Senator Ayotte in the Senate Armed Service Committee. We'd often buy munitions at the lowest possible rate just to keep the industrial line going uh, because that was always often the bill payer for other things, kind of in a just-in-time model. And kind of based on what we're seeing going on in the world, I think, I'm feeling like a just-in-time model is not that wise when it comes to munitions when you consider, as Mark Montgomery and I have, you know, the long-range anti-ship missile, you know, We'd probably need about 1,000, 1,200 of those. We've got about two to 300. We're going to run out in the first week or two. I would call that suboptimal. So what's your assessment of the uh, U.S. defense industrial base? So I think that one could pretty easily go back to the discussion you had about, like, you know, what is the Armed Services Committee authorizing? What are we funding yes. every year? And, you know, the defense industrial base is made up of private companies which you know exist in order to produce something and I truly believe that these providers of munitions and capabilities and platforms for our troops and our you know uh, our military um, they believe in the product and they believe in like why they're making it to mm -hmm. protect democracy but in the end they are companies right. that have to you know keep the lights on make a profit um, for their shareholders and they're not going to make unreasonable investments in creating a vast capacity and having a huge number of employees who are producing nothing or producing something that doesn't have a buyer. Mm -hmm. um, so we've kind of done it to ourselves over the course of time of saying we're going to keep the minimum amount, uh, we're going to order the minimum amount per year to keep yeah. the production line going. Um, but then having this false perception that they'll just ramp up whenever we yeah. need them to and we'll then you'll to be it. able yeah. to find yeah. plenty of people who have the skills to make these things, plenty of raw materials that go into making these components. And the truth is, is that supply chain is very complex. Those skills are very fungible and tangible, mm -hmm. and it has not proven as easy to ramp up as, you know, we kind of, we all have this vision of, you know, how the, we as a country ramped up for World War II and started mm -hmm. building hundreds and thousands of ships and platforms and munitions um, in a very rapid fashion. And, you know, the truth is, is there has to be a commitment if there's gonna be a ramp up, there has to be an investment to do that, and there also has to be a commitment um, that there's going to be a longer-term sustained demand for these, um, and so it, it kind of becomes this balance of we can only ask industry to do something that's not going to essentially bankrupt and kill the industry that we need in order to do it, right? Yes. It can't be a catch-22 where we ask them to do something that's going to essentially bankrupt them and cause them to not be around to do it the next time we need it. So I think we need more consistency. Um, we need more consistency and longer-term commitments in procurement. Um, in order to get industry on a glide scope where they're comfortable making those investments, hiring those people, and reinvigorating that supply chain to produce at the capacity that we understand we need. And we also need to rely more fully on allies and partners. I mean, mm -hmm. we, 
you know, it's, and I had some arguments with some other members, now former members, um, when Visklowski was the chair of defense appropriations, for example, a lot of them made in America requirements for the frigate program. You know, I tried to talk about how they were counterproductive, they were going to cost more, they were going to make the timeline longer, which we often struggle with meeting deadlines for um, major programs like that. Some of our allies and partners have incredible capacity and mm -hmm. ability to scale. And like I mentioned earlier, we're seeing the Koreans do that now with the howitzers, for example. Um, yet we create policies that sort of prevent us from working globally with mm -hmm. our aligned countries and mm -hmm. participating together with defense industrial base. You know, we build the Arleigh Burke class destroyer in Maine and Pascagoula. But who else builds the exact same hull based off our design but in other countries? The Koreans, the Japanese. They essentially, you know, we have partners with whom we can collaborate in order to increase our capacity, yet we sort of stovepipe it in this made in America mindset, which I think to get where we need to get in the current world environment, we need to broaden that aperture and look at how we can both work with partners and maintain um, you know, American jobs and industry. I'm not yeah. saying that we offshore it. I'm yeah. saying we just collaborate where each entity focuses on providing what they're strongest and most capable in providing for the collective benefit. It's a great point. And the increased use of multi-year procurement might incentivize industry to make those investments so they have the additional capacity and the, and, and the, the personnel power there to, to produce more things. Any quick thoughts, General McMaster, on defense industrial base issues that you'd like no, to No, just there's two points. You know, it's, it's, of course, the, the hardware and the equipment, the manufacturing equipment, which has taken a long time to, you know, to, to deliver, to get the, op the lines open. But it's also the workforce you know, that has to be trained and maintained over, over time, as well as the upstream components uh, of munitions, for, for example, or anything. I mean, batteries. You know, I mean, just think about how reliant we've become on batteries and magnets and you know other really critical components for everything uh, that we make, microprocessors, uh, you know, chips and so forth, computer chips. So I, I just do think that you know we don't want a heavy-handed industrial policy that that makes the government the resource allocator, but we do need to incentivize some significant changes in not only the industrial base but also the supply chain that's critical to developing the weapons and the capabilities we need, and then also just to have a vibrant economy if you look at single points of failure in supply chains that are associated with over-concentration in China in particular. You know, it, it, is an, it is an aberration that so much of the world's manufacturing has been concentrated on the southeastern coast of China. Mm. That now is a, a huge vulnerability, and we have to take corrective action now. Along with allies, as Elaine said. Totally. Yeah. Um, to scrunch uh, a lot of things in the last five minutes here, a comment from me, then a question for each of you. The comment, uh, you know, here we are uh, just a few days from the end of the fiscal year. Once again, we don't have a National Defense Authorization Act passed. We uh, uh, don't have a defense appropriation. Um, and we're even ironing a government shutdown. So um, I'd say at a time when we're facing extraordinary threats, it feels like uh, we have one too many self-inflicted wounds here, uh, I would say. And it's going to take... Uh, people of good faith from both parties to get us to a better place, hopefully. So there's the, there's the comment. Now the and question. how about not confirming senior officers? There we go. That's where exactly where I was going. So um, to, to you, <clears> if I may, uh, Ms. Luria, um, Senator Tuberville has a blanket hold, according to latest information I have. That's 319 nominations that are currently being held as a result of hold. 72 of them are unable to assume positions. There's deep concern coming from all the services about the, not only the personnel impacts of this, but the readiness impacts of this. Any quick thoughts on, on Senator Tuberville's hold and the impact it's having on the military? 
first, the most ironic part of this is who's forcing a vote on confirming the Marine Corps <laughs> yeah. Commandant is yeah. Tupperville yeah. himself when yeah. he has the hold yeah. in place. Um, but I think it has significant uh, impact. Um, I recall sometimes when I was in Congress that I sought to make sure we didn't use the defense bill as a way to litigate some of these social issues, which I think are kind of the things that have led up to um, Tuberville's position that he is not budging on, which is now causing this hold. Um, so, you know, the easiest thing to do were for him to be say, like, enough is enough, I proved my point, we're going to change that in next year's bill and have some compromise and people coming together to make sure that both, um, you know, women's reproductive health can be taken care of for all of our military, uh, but second, addressing those concerns, you know, for people who view the current policy as potentially using taxpayer dollars to, to do something that they don't agree with. I mean, this is truly like litigating the Hyde Amendment through the NDAA. And, um, you know, I think that's something that should have been avoided, which kind of ultimately got us here. I don't agree with Tuberville's tactics and especially, mm -hmm. you know, seeing the pile up of these confirmations and the impact it's had. Um, but again, I mean, this is really about, like, I think bad politics rather mm -hmm. than, poli you know, using mm -hmm. that as a tool on the backs of our service members mm -hmm. rather than, you know, what I would like to see more of in government is, you know, people actually right. coming to a compromise, hearing everyone's concerns on this and actually getting somewhere where, like, we can sort of address the concern, remove the hold, confirm people, and then be able to focus more yeah. with confirm people on yeah. these issues that we've talked about today. For those uh, taking notes at home outside the Beltway, I think your comment about backs of the military is the key thing. As someone who you know, advised U.S. senators a few times to uh, implement a hold, uh, those holds were always on civilian nominees. And to me, the key principle here is we are uh, we are going after members of the military based on a policy that we don't like that they don't control. So, and to me, that's the principle. Can't we all agree that you don't punish the military for policies they don't control? To me, that's the principle. General McMaster, we've talked a lot about worrying things here, but knowing you and admiring you for many years, uh, I always know that uh, you're essentially an optimist. Uh, and, and so uh, I, I want to end on a high note, as, to use your uh, George yeah. Costanza <laughs> quote there. Um, um, you know, the title here is Extraordinary Threats and Opportunities. I put that yeah. opportunity in there for, for you. Um, for that reason, so... Um, uh, you know, uh, if you were a, an alien from landing from Mars, uh, you'd, you'd pick the United States. You could be any country. You'd pick the United States, wouldn't you? Is, Absolutely. you why, why would you pick the United States? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I do think it's time for renewal in our country, renewal in our confidence in who we are as a people and in our democratic principles and institutions and, and, and processes. And I think what we've seen for too long uh, is that many politicians, certainly not the, poli the, the former politician uh, who's sharing the stage with us, uh, have compromised our principles to score partisan political points, whether it's on uh, holding up nominations or whether it's on driving what I would say is a radical uh, cultural agenda within uh, the military these days. I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, General Milley's awards, <laughs> for example, written, you know, with neutral pronouns and so on. I mean, I'm just like, I mean, come on. You know, that's not what the military is for. Now, we have an opportunity to focus on really what, what the military is for, we have a focus, uh, the opportunity to, to renew our confidence in our democratic process, and it's going to be under duress in the next year. But I do think we ought to take solace in the fact uh, that, uh, that you know, we have freedom of speech, freedom of expression, that in our democracy, which appears really ugly, that we have means for self-correction, short of revolution, that our democratic societies are quite resilient. Um, uh, and, and, and authoritarian regimes are very brittle. I mean, I look at, I really think that, that China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea 
are in extraordinarily weak positions right now. We, we saw an ex-hot dog salesman uh, and an ex-convict take over the equivalent of Cent CENTCOM headquarters, you know, and, and drive toward, toward Moscow. That's not really a sign of strength. We have, you know, of course, all of the contradictions and, and um, in, in the Chinese economy uh, are coming back, which is what looks to me to have been a decades-long Ponzi scheme. Uh, that, that is on the brink of, uh, of collapse, and you see the anxiety of the Chinese Communist Party as they, it, they race to perfect their technologically enabled police state uh, before people become even more discontent. Iran, on, the, on, the, on the, the anniversary of Masa Amini's murder, is rounding up everybody they, they, they can uh, and, and putting more pol political prisoners behind bars to prevent what they fear would be a, a great uprising. Uh, and of course, North Korea always appears on the brink of, of collapse, but North Korea has some very severe issues associated with its economy and droughts and so forth. So I really, I think we should feel much better about ourselves. As you mentioned, you know, if you came from outer space, you came from anywhere. Nobody's trying to immigrate to the four countries I just mentioned, you know? And so I, I think, I think we, ought to, we ought to help, you know, restore our confidence in who we are. We ought to focus on the problems that we have, but I think what I'd love to see is a restoration of agency, you know? Mm. That a recognition that if we work together, we can build a better future. You know, I think the, the narrative so, so often these days is, you know, the system is, is all against you. We want to put the words institutional and structural in front of every problem. Well, institutions are made of people, right? And people under effective leadership can affect change that's beneficial to our country and to future generations. Well, I want to thank you both sincerely for your decades of distinguished service to our country. General McMaster, I want to thank you for leading our center on military and political power. Just, um, and I want to thank you for your principled leadership and, um, and that all you've done for our country, both in uniform and on, on the Armed Services Committee. It's been a real honor to have you here as well. So I want to uh, thank our audience uh, in person and virtually for taking time to join us. Uh, for more information on FDD and our center on military and political power, and for the latest analysis on these issues, we encourage you to visit FDD.org. We hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Yes. Thanks.